0: Lord, Lord, I prophesied in your name. And it's like, I never knew you. You know, there, there are people that claim the faith, but they, they don't, they're not in the faith. They talk the talk, they're not really in. And so maybe the Spirit, that's, He spoke it through Jesus' ministry. The Spirit has spoken it through the New Testament Scriptures. Spirit spoke it through the Old Testament Scriptures, because this has always been a reality. of people that are brought into covenant relationship with God, but everyone who's in the covenant isn't really in the covenant. so this is just scriptural truth that the Spirit makes clear. We shouldn't be surprised by it. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be saddened. We shouldn't be shocked. We, shouldn't, we, should, we should feel the pain of it, but we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be like, wait, what in the world is happening? We're doing something wrong? This is, this is going to happen. That doesn't mean get used to it. But the Spirit has made it plain. The Spirit has expressly said... Then in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching, teachings of demons. And then he talks about people that are doing this now in their midst. He already mentioned uh, earlier in the book, at the end of chapter 1, Hymenaeus and Alexander who have made shipwreck of their faith. So he doesn't mean later times, like at the very end, you know, when the stars are collapsing and a black hole is sucking Earth in, or whatever the final, you know, picture of, uh, of the apocalypse is. He he means the later times, starting now. He's telling Timothy, the later times means starting now because this is happening now and it's still happening. So this isn't something future for us. This is something we can look around us and see. Hey, this happens. It's scary. It's saddening but it's true. And I think what's incredible here is he's not just talking about people that just give up the faith by saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. And we see that. And that's not just church members, that's church pastors. How a person can go from writing books and leading large church ministries and being asked to preach all over the world and then suddenly go, nah, I kiss the faith goodbye. That's sad, but that's not exactly what he has here in mind. That's confusing and that's painful, but he's talking about people that left the faith, but they don't think they've left the faith. They think they've upgraded the faith because they add to it. They still believe in God, they just think God forbids marriage. They still believe in God, they just think God forbids certain kinds of foods. And if you want to be as spiritual as I am, that's cool, that's cute, you go to church. But if you want to be as holy as I am, you've got to step up your game and realize the further truth that I'm unpacking for you. Your pastor didn't teach you this. Right? Your elders didn't teach you this. They're not in the know. They don't know. They're still ignorant. But let me tell you this truth about God. So he gives a couple examples that are probably happening in their congregation. That there're people that are forbidding marriage and they're requiring abstinence from foods. Like maybe you shouldn't eat meat, or maybe they're taking Old Testament laws about pork and saying you shouldn't eat it. Look, it says it right there in the Old Testament. And then you got Christians going, "Oh, oh, is that is that what it should be?" Paul just told the other church, "Better to be single." Paul's single. Shouldn't marry. Shouldn't do it. It's like, oh, oh, it sounds spiritual. So, the fact that it is demonic teaching, what he says in verse one, deceitful spirits and teaching of demons, they're not drawing pentagrams and cutting off goats' heads and going, what you really need to do to start your devotional life is to start by sacrificing a goat. It's not going to sound demonic. It's going to sound scriptural. It's going to sound like it's godly. It's going to sound so holy. I'm, you're, you're at this next level. You don't even eat certain foods. You're at this next level where you fast this many times a week. Right? And so it's, it's deceiving. They're deceitful spirits. How does a spirit deceive somebody? who's religious and into church. They're already into religion. They come to church. Maybe they don't quite know Christ yet, but they think they know Christ. How do you deceive a person like that? You don't deceive them by going, now what I need you to do is go in the forest and sacrifice a baby to, the, to this other God. Like, no. It's going to be good, good, keep going. What else can you add to the gospel? What else can you put in the gospel? And make rules and laws that aren't sincere, they come out of liars, verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars, are these people just, you know, sitting behind closed doors going, man, what kind of lie can we come up with? No, they themselves are deceived. How do we know that? He says their consciences have been seared. And so just as if you, uh, you know, burn your hands and you get your skin kind of, healed over and it's your hand there and that burn is not as sensitive, that happened to me actually, uh, you've got these calluses that you're not quite as sensitive there as you used to be before you got burned. And so the, the, the word there is cauterized, you know, it's seared, and you don't feel the way you used to feel. So how does that happen? Over time you buy into a little lie and after you buy into a little lie, you buy into a medium-sized lie, and after you buy into a medium-sized lie, you give way to the bigger lie and before you know it, you're not sensitive to the truth anymore. So these people themselves, they think they have the truth because they're numb to the actual truth of God's word. And so the result is that they're hypocrites. And they maybe can't even see it. Their consciences don't even prick them anymore, but they're, they're liars. They say one thing about God's grace, but then they, they prop up law. They say we honor the whole counsel of Scripture, but they take slivers of Scripture and make that law, and they don't let other Scripture balance it out or weigh in on it. They, they cherry-pick their Scriptures to create some other kind of religion that ends up not actually being the faith. And they devote themselves to it. It's so holy and it's so religious. They they depart from the faith by devoting themselves to what they think the faith is. That's what's weird. And that's what's ironic about it. They depart from the faith by devoting themselves to what is actually not the faith. It's, It's lies. They're deceitful spirits. They're not teachings from Scripture. They're teachings of demons. I mean, you think about how Satan started this whole thing off. Did God say, he didn't come in like, God doesn't exist. He came in like, yeah, God exists, and we do need to listen to what he said. But did he actually say that? That's how lies work. That's how we get deceived. that it started like that, and demons still perpetuate that kind of thing. It is demonic. It is just as demonic to add to the gospel as it is to completely outright deny the existence of God. What kind of things did they do? What kind of lies are they? We have two examples here that we can extrapolate from, but he says they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods, and then Paul wants to quickly correct it. He's just like, those of you that are still in this church in Ephesus, that, that the church where Timothy is, that are still maybe confused by this, let me clear it up for you in terms of the marriage, marriage and abstinence from foods. He says they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. If you actually have the faith, the verb of faith is believe. So if you believe, if you have the faith, and you actually know the truth, you know that marriage is good. And the reason why you know that marriage is good is because God created it. How can it be wrong to engage in something that God made? He made it. So who are we to say, all right, God, I'm not going to do this. And, and make it as if that's a holy thing. It can never be a holy thing to do something that God Himself has signed, created it, and stamped with His signature and said, This is good. God created foods and not just vegetables and fruits. Meats were eaten in the Old Testament. The strictest books you can think of, Leviticus, it didn't ban all meats for certain kinds. But it banned a lot of things, mixed clothing, you know, can't wear linen with wool. Like There was a lot of weird stuff. You remember that as we walked through Leviticus? What does it all mean? It means be different from the cultures around you. Then you get to the New Testament, Jesus made it clear, the Holy Spirit made it clear to Peter that all unclean foods are declared clean now. All unclean foods are now declared clean. So that means the rules in the Old Testament about certain foods being unclean were temporary and were a picture of something that now is fulfilled that Jesus is here. Scripture makes that plain. But somehow, there's some kind of foods that you're not supposed to eat and you're more holy, you are more godly if if you abstain from these certain kinds of foods. We don't know what the exact situation was behind it, but Paul's point to undo it it's to say that if God created something, then it's good. So I think what we have here is our, uh, our penchant, our inclination to take something that's a good thing, make it into a bad thing, and then uh, because of that distortion, ban it. So it goes from a good thing marriage to a bad thing. Look at all the divorces. Look at all the adultery. Look at fornication. Look at all these issues. Look at all these problems. Good thing. We can make it into a bad thing. We distort marriage. We pervert marriage. We do something else with marriage. Or we want the benefits of marriage without actually the covenant. And so we do the living together thing. And all these kind of things that we do with marriage. Good thing becomes a bad thing and what do we do with that? Well then, no thing. No marriage, then. A lot of different kinds of foods can lead to gluttony. We can we can just we can just bang our way through buffets without any thought as to should I stop now? The availability of food doesn't mean there should be no, no fetters. <laughs> Good thing, food. God created a large variety of it. Can become a bad thing like gluttony. So, what does a cultish holy person want to do? Well, a good thing that become a bad thing should just be no thing. Fast a lot. Cut out these foods from your cabinet because they're not godly. Only eat what Daniel ate, as if that's what the Book of Daniel is about to give you a diet. It's not. <laughs> Take your Daniel diets and I'd say throw them in the trash, but, I mean, it wouldn't kill you to eat veggies. (laughs) Preaching to myself. (laughs) Because people take good things and turn them into bad things, Pharisee types will take those good things that can be easily turned into bad things and make them into no things. And so that's why we issued that statement, the issue of clarification on alcohol. Now, some of you here may believe if you put alcohol to your lips, you're in sin. There's just, it's, scripture doesn't really back that up. But we recognize that you can take a good thing and easily turn it into a bad thing. I mean, Paul prescribes wine for Timothy. Hey, when your stomach's not feeling well, like a little less water, a little wine there, buddy. He's in no way commending getting drunk. And so our pension is to take a good thing that is so often turned into a bad thing and make a rule that is extra biblical and say, no thing, or you're going to hell. Guys, that's deceitful. That's deceitful. And that's even hard for me to preach, especially the way I grew up. I grew up around alcoholic abuse. I grew up around uh, male figures that will do all kinds of insane things to their own daughters because they drank too much. I don't drink. And the last thing on my mind when my kids turn 21 is to take them go drinking. I'd rather they not. But, but I, I, can't, I can't from Scripture say, thou shalt not drink. See, that's where I would cross the line. And that would be deceitful to teach my kids that it is evil to drink. It wouldn't be deceitful to show, to show them how out of control it can get. But there's a line there that's crossed. And because that line is so easy to cross and so difficult to discern sometimes, a church can easily start off holding to the gospel and end up becoming a cult. Because they add rules that aren't really in Scripture. And if it's not in Scripture and we're making it a rule, that's a lie. And Satan wants to use these things to distort the truth to make our consciences seared toward what is actually true as we continue to build up sort of this false scaffolding around religion by forbidding certain things, requiring other things. And Paul is saying, here's how you know that stuff is not true. Did God create it? Did God create it? What did he create it for? There's a lot of things that God created that probably shouldn't go in your body. What are you it for? What's the purpose behind it? What does Scripture teach us is the purpose of marriage. What is the purpose of it? So the first thing you do is, did God create this thing? And what did He create it for? The second thing is, can you give thanks for it? I mean, if God created it to be a good thing, and we enjoy it, In the way that he created it to be enjoyed, we should be thankful for it. To use an obvious example, if you are pulling up in front of that house where that lady lives that's not your wife and you're about to go in there and cheat on your spouse, before you get out of your car, can you thank the Lord for the opportunity to have this little fling? Thank you, God that nobody's looking. Your conscience would have to be really cauterized to thank God for that, right? So Paul is using thankfulness as a way to discern what actually doesn't make sense, to do something that's a good thing and turn it into a bad thing. If you can't thank God for it, then it's a bad thing. But the reverse is also true. We can't be thankful to God that we're rejecting something that he's given us that's good. Here's something that's good. Right, let's, let's give thanks to God for this meal. No, I can't. I can't give thanks to God for this meal. There's pork on it. There's pork on the plate. See, but, but God has said, told Peter, don't call something unclean that I'm calling clean. I'm making it good. Thank me for it. So after lunch today, we're all going to go to Famous Dave's. Now. <laughs> I don't know. God created it, if God calls it good and God calls it clean, then we should be thankful for it. And what Paul is saying is there are things, that position of thankfulness helps us discern that we've got things in the right place. We don't want to give thanks to God for our 13th shot, you know, (laughs) Thank you, God, I can't even think anymore. But, you know, like, you can't be, it, That's hard to thank God when you know you're crossing the line. And so thankfulness puts guardrails there so that we keep good things as good things and we don't turn them into bad things. And it also puts guardrails there so that we don't take things that are oftentimes made into bad things and then just totally ban them from our lives. It, it keeps us in the right lane to be thankful to God for what he's given us, but because our consciences are so easily seared, it's a little too objective, uh, subjective to just think about: Am I thankful for this? Right? I mean, you, you can get to a point of conscience numbness. You could be like, No, I actually thank God for this thing. I don't think it's sinful. I thank, I thank Him for it. Okay, yeah, but your thankfulness needs to be guarded and protected and guided by God's Word. he can't just make stuff up. Just because you feel thankful for something, if Scripture goes, no, actually God says no, you need to be like, oh, that that wasn't a godly thankfulness, that was a selfish thankfulness. And the way you know the difference is Scripture. And he says as much. He says, verse 4, For everything created by God is good, And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And by prayer, there, I think he's returning to that theme of thanksgiving because thankfulness and prayer are tethered so often in Paul's letters. But it's not just prayerful thanks. We're thanking God based on what we know to be true in God's word. God's word is what calls something good. We know God created something and God sees it as good because scripture tells us that. So we need to know God's Word. We can't just go by conscience. Your conscience needs to to continually be made sensitive. It's like filing the calluses down so you can feel better again. And that file that you take to your callous conscience is Scripture. So that Scripture teaches your mind how to discern what is right and what is wrong. And it takes the study of the Bible There's just no way around it. You cannot persevere as a Christian by feelings, by thoughts. So we know what we're supposed to be thankful for because it is clear in God's Word. Verse 5, it is made holy by the Word of God and prayer, not just prayer based on the latest blog you read, how you felt when you woke up this morning. We need an objective standard, as he's been emphasizing throughout this whole thing, right? Sound doctrine. What is actually true? And when you see what the truth is, when something doesn't match that truth, you can tell it's the counterfeit. Even if it starts with truth. Look at this verse. It actually says this. You need to be able to go, right. But then when you look at these other three verses, you realize what that verse actually means. No, 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 no. don't pay attention to those other verses. You'll notice when the Jehovah Witnesses come to your door, they have their set of a dozen verses, and they don't want you to derail off of those verses. They'll bring up a verse. If you start unpacking it with context, well, if you read it in context, oh, forget context. Bang, the next verse comes out. Now you're in Corinthians. We're not in John 1 anymore. Now we're in Corinthians. Oh, and then you follow them there. But, but the context, well, Paul is actually saying, no, not in context. Bang, they got another verse from Romans. It, it's, it's trickery. Pay no attention to the other verses. Pay only attention to these particular verses that we're ripping out of context. And that's how cults start. But if you don't know how to even judge context, if you don't even know what context is, if you do that in your devotional life, I read a verse this morning. Well, what did did that verse do to you? That verse made me feel like this, and I I felt good today. The verse made you feel like this? What What does the verse mean? Well, I don't know really what the verse means, but the way it hit me. See, we shouldn't do our small groups like that. Oh, how it hit me was this. Oh, good. I affirm that. Next. Oh, the way it hit me was that. Oh, that's great. Good for you. It didn't hit any of us that way. No one in the history of the church got hit that way by that verse. But you came up with that, and that's really clever, and that's really novel. Good for you. We hope you come back next week. Who's next? No, we need to be able to sit around Scripture and go, I see how you came up with that. Or maybe I didn't really, but, but it's actually this. And we should be able to be honest with each other and go, I don't know, is it that? Well, I don't know, there's this verse over here. Oh yeah, how does this line up with that verse over there? And let all of Scripture speak to something and not take one Scripture and just run with it based on what we want to be thankful for. And so he wants to protect them from going down these rabbit trails, from going down these paths that lead to actually losing the faith. Well, how do we avoid it? You have got to train for it. If you're going to persevere, if you're going to make it to the end of the movie, if you're one of the cast members that doesn't get killed off, you need to train for it. You need to be intentional about it. It does not happen by accident. If you are lax toward your godliness, you will not persevere. It says in verse 6 if you put these things before the brothers, he's talking to Timothy and how to address this in the church. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed? What is he training in? Brothers and sisters, there's so many things to do as a Christian. We should be prayerful. We should have fellowship times. We should encourage one another. We should, we should visit the sick. There are a lot of things that Christianity is about, but all of those things are founded on what? Doctrine. Doctrine is not for nerds. Doctrine is not for seminarians. Doctrine is for You, 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 you. You, each and every one of you, are theologians. You can be a bad theologian. You can be a lazy theologian. You cannot even know what the word theologian means, but you are one. What do you believe about God? Theology is a the study of God. What, what do you believe about God? Do you believe about God, what you grew up with? Do you believe about God, what you feel like? Or is there an objective standard that you're supposed to study Well, there is an objective standard that you're supposed to study. And Paul's telling Timothy, you know how you minimize the fallout? You know how you minimize people walking away from the truth? You know how you avoid walking away from the truth yourself, Timothy? It's not because you were trained by the great apostle Paul. It's only if you stick to sound doctrine that so far you've been following, you need to continue to follow that. And that takes training. You know, that takes a stick to itness that has to continue for that to happen. Verse 7 continues, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. I love how Paul puts that. Even when they sound really good and it sounds really clever, at the end of the day, it is irreverent. You know, you, you sit and talk with a Mormon and they sound so godly and they spent years doing missionary work and they go door to door, house to house, and one week they probably talk to more people than most of us in here talk to in years about God. They're so devoted, and they're so religious, and they're kind. They're loving to their neighbors. And they read, and they do homework. But at the end of the day, they believe that God the Father used to be a man who sinned. That is irreverent. It doesn't matter how holy you look on the outside. That's an irreverent truth. And so if you just peel back the layers of how things look, and get to the actual truth and get to the actual verses. and what somebody actually is saying, they're irreverent. and, and it's like he's like, "Come on man, it's just silly." As Paul's just saying, "It's just dumb." But people, people slip on these things all the time. They're just myths. They're made up, they're not true. It's not scriptural. How do you avoid that? By training yourself for godliness? The word he uses here for train actually is the word from which we get gymnasium, like you go to the gym. It's it's from that. If you were reading the Greek and don't even know the Greek, you can see that word there. And you go, oh, is that like as in gymnasium? Yes! That's where we get the word. He's saying, go to the gym. That's the only way you can make it. You don't make it by being a spiritual couch potato. You don't make it by just... Day goes by after day, and you think about working out. You know you're supposed to work out. You're waiting for January to roll around so you can try yet another gym. But if you don't get your behind off the couch and into the gym and actually start putting work, it's not going to change anything. And this was true as true now as it was back then. He's saying you've got to put in work because perseverance doesn't come by accident. Train yourself for godliness. Godliness doesn't just come passively. You work for it. You strive at it. Verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, he's like, that's great. Some of you actually go to the literal gym, and that's cool. But that only has limited value. Godliness is of value in every way. You can think of a lot of benefits to to physical fitness. A lot of benefits. Longevity and feeling better, breathing better. Eating better, you know, more energy to bop around with their grandkids. Whatever you can come up with, all kinds of. And he's saying, as many as you can come up with, benefits for physical fitness. Spiritual fitness is relevant to everything. Spiritual fitness is relevant to your hobby. Spiritual fitness is relevant to your career. Spiritual fitness is relevant to your dating life. Spiritual fitness is relevant to how you play softball. <laughs> Right, that that we can be like, okay, strike three. As just let the person go. Just show some grace, right? That you can spill and fall in front of everybody, and we laugh and we're cool, right? It's not overly competitive. As something as small as softball can be a way to display godliness, can it not? So that if somebody comes that isn't a part of the church and plays softball with us, maybe they can sense this isn't how we normally play softball. Normally, we're like yelling at each other, and and we're just like, man, what do you say? One more inning? Who cares? Right, So godliness plays into everything, and that makes godliness of foremost importance. It takes effort. Bodily training is of some value, but godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It's promising for now, and it's promising for now for later. That means every waking moment of your day, godliness is relevant to it. Are you working that out? Are you doing that? There's so many parallels between gyms and churches. I, I feel like I come up with a new one every week, you know? But, brothers and sisters, I mean, you know, you go to this big box gym or whatever, and there's like bagels, soda machine, They're like, we don't care if you come or don't come. Come or don't, whatever. The no-judgment zone. They're not going to call you if you're not getting fit. They'll call you if your membership expired and you didn't renew it. They want your money. How many churches are exactly that? Come on in. We're fun. We're not going to tell you you're wrong. Everybody welcome. Come as you are and stay as you are. No need to change you're right, you're right, oh yeah, good new interpretation, never heard of it before, you're right, everybody's right, just come on in and do what you want. But then you go to a a church where it's like, no, there's truth, and we love you, and we want to see what's best for you, but what's best for you is not to snack on Cheetos all day. I'm sorry, they might be tasty, but I want you to turn the bag around and read the actual ingredients. Don't bother me with ingredients. Nutrients. I want to just eat what tastes good. I know that's why you are slovenly and weak. Now, if somebody takes that as judgy, they might leave that gym, but they're never going to get fit. And is a church actually loving people if we just let people believe that they can just snack on Oreo, Oreos all day and get, get to their goals? Obviously not what kind of church are we going to be? When this church offers opportunities for you to beef up your learning and your understanding, I don't want you to just relegate that to the select few, the upper echelon, the people that are training to be elders. No, that's for you. That's for you. It's for you to learn. It's for you to grow and mature so that you can understand the whole counsel of God in a way that grows you in maturity in Christ. We want you to be fit And we want you to be serious about spiritual fitness because if not, you will be a statistic. It might not be a lie about forbidding marriage. It might not be a lie about what your diet should look like, but it will be some lie. It will be some kind of deceitful scheme, and you will leave the faith. Isn't that what's so attractive sometimes about cults? people that leave a Christian church, an evangelical church to go to a cult, I I feel like oftentimes the testimony is, I went to this church and it was rah, rah, music, bang the drums, somebody would get up, tell a few jokes, you know, it was like this, this big production. But they weren't real serious about the faith. Then I met these two guys that came to my door. They were 18 years old and they weren't out there messing around with people in the world. They weren't out, you know, They were were studying scripture. They knew three times more than I feel like, than I knew, and I've been in church forever. I realized, man, we need to get serious. A lot of the things that we let fly in evangelical churches, I wonder if they let it fly in Islam. Nope. We are sitting around in our circles like, did you pray today? Yeah, I prayed three times this week. That's up from last week. They're like five times a day. Did you face the right direction? Because that didn't count. Now, I'm not saying we should become Islamic. What I'm saying is, I think sometimes what's attractive about cults and other religions is is this training for godliness. That's attractive. And that's something that is godly. God created that. He created in us this this desire to be engaged and not just sort of passively allow God to do stuff and we're just bumping, you know, in life just day to day, week to week, but that there's movement and there's progress and that we're challenging one another and that is a good thing. And sometimes the evangelical church doesn't display that and cults do. They're serious about studying. They're not gathering for pizza. They want to open up the Book of Mormon and read it. So where are we going to be? It would break my heart. If anyone here left this church because we weren't teaching you enough, and you went because you realized this other cult place is actually giving meat, yeah, well, they're sneaking poison in it. We want to make sure we're serious about eating right spiritually, that, that we're working out spiritually. Because it's a value for everything. It holds promise for this life. It holds promise for the life to come. And then here's how he closes it. The saying is trustworthy and desiring a full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people. Especially of those who believe. I don't want to take too long to unpack this. He doesn't mean God saves every single person. That wouldn't make sense. He saves the whole world, but he especially saves some of them. That that doesn't make any sense. But you remember in the beginning of this book when we talked about God desires all people to come? What people? Kings, servants, blue-collar, white-collar people, East Coast people, West Coast people, mountain people, people that live in the plains, kinds of people, categories of people, all kinds of people he desires to, to come. And he's the savior of all, big, small, whatever your background And when he says, especially those who believe, well, of course those who believe. But he means specifically what I'm talking about is those who believe. It's not a subset of the other. So he ends with this gospel that is a hope. We have our hope set on the living God. Your hope is not set on some weird rules and silly myths. Your hope is set on the living God. What that living God says is true about himself and about yourself. and We set our hope on him. And he saves us through faith, not through the things that we do. That is awesome. The last thing I want you to leave here with is, I guess Pastor's saying, in order for me to be saved, I've got to get to work. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, if you are saved, you will get to work. And if you're not getting to work, maybe you're not saved, actually. But if you actually believe, then you'll be training for godliness. And some of us will perform at higher speeds and higher rates than others. All of us won't be able to pick up the same weight. All of us won't be able to run the same laps in the same time, but we're improving, we're growing, we're encouraging one another, and we're disallowing laziness. We're encouraging one another that if we really have faith, if God has done this heart change that that we believe that salvation is. He's taken out the stony heart that doesn't respond to anything, and he's put in a heart of flesh that now actually pumps the blood of grace through my veins so I can actually get up and move. If that's actually happened, I'm going to get up and move. And that means in verse 10, to this end, that's godliness, from verse 7. For, for to this end we toil and we strive, not we wait for it to happen. What are you going to do this week to be aggressively on the attack to get spiritually fit? What are you going to do to be stronger tomorrow than you were yesterday? We have to think about these things. And go, Okay, I'm weak here, let me strengthen that. And it takes study it takes immersion in the Bible, and it takes effort to do it. We toil, we work in it, and we strive for it. How will we persevere in the faith? We'll persevere in the faith if we train for it. Otherwise, think back to your last roller coaster diet. That's what your spiritual life will look like. You start, you stop. You come, you don't. You crack open the Bible, it, collect, it collects dust. You start praying, you stop praying. Up, down. Hot, cold. And after a while, your kids are like, okay, he's just on another hot streak. We'll just wait for the cold one to hit. No one's gonna take you seriously. You're not a fitness person. You just feel bad when something doesn't fit right. And you look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, you feel bad, so you diet for a couple weeks and then the thing fits again and then you're back to eating whatever you want. You don't care about health, right? I know I'm speaking to many of us here with our New Year's resolution diet swings. But that's the parallel that Paul is. You will always be swinging up and down, up and down, and one of those down swings is going to be your last one. Somebody will take you out with a lie. And after a while, those roller coaster up and downs, those swings start searing your conscience till you can't really feel that bad about being on a downswing anymore. And then you just stay down there. That's dangerous. So get back up. Get back up. Get in there. Study God's word. Toil in it. Strive for it. Because God makes us godly through his salvation. He saves us so that we can pursue Christ. He doesn't save us so that we can be indifferent to Christ. We want to be like Him and conform to Him, and that takes work through the study of the Word and through thankful prayer. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful.